Hey folks, and welcome to Brown and Out, the podcast where we give voice to LGBTQ people of color in Vermont. Today we're talking to Katerina Campbell. How's it going, Katerina? It's going well, son- Reggie. I'm spending Sunday with you, so that is a good way to have a Sunday morning. Thank you for sharing it with me. Oh, you're welcome. No problem. I am very happy that you could make it onto the show. Um, so, what are a few things that folks should know about Katerina? I'm a Leo. <laughs> <laughs> I okay. I used to hate being a Leo, and I fought it for a lot of my life, um, because when I was little, I was like I was old enough to read, but I might have told you this story before. That's I, okay. Um, I could read, and I was in a like a gift shop when they had the magnets about the positive and negative qualities. So they had one magnet with positive qualities and one magnet with negative qualities. And Leo's being who we are, we had bought out all the positive ones. <laughs> so the only things that were left for Leo were like, so I'm little and I'm like, oh, that's my birthday. I'm stubborn and self-centered and like, <laughs> like ugh, like I don't want to be a Leo. I As if those were bad things. <laughs> so, um, but I have, I, I think I have like four or five planets in Leo. So I'm like a mega Leo. Um, F- I, can you just, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's very interesting. Can we, can, can we break down that piece just a bit? You have four or five planets. In Leo. I have a friend, a beloved friend who's really gifted in astrology and she's mm-hmm. done my chart a couple times. Okay. Um, I'm adopted, so it's kind of hard to know exactly where things are, but yeah, I have many planets in Leo and I don't know which ones they are, but so I have kind of tried to step into the world of like what does it mean to be like Obama's a Leo like I'm cool with that like there are some really wonderful people and so what does it look like to have that leadership but to try to not be so many of the icky things Mm. um so I am now coming out as a Leo (laughs) I'm coming out to you as a Leo and thank you I appreciate that (laughs) thank you for creating a safe space where that can happen that's so interesting that you would mention that because right now that's where we are yes we are in the safe space of the pride center yeah where you work okay why don't you tell us a bit about that what's it like to work at the pride center I tell folks, my my short answer to that is that I get to work on behalf of the liberation of people and communities I love every day. Mm. And it is such a blessing. It is such a gift. Um, The Pride Center is a place, you know, like many of us, I hold many identities, um, many of which require care and understanding. And the team at the Pride Center is one where I can be really open about why I love my work and why I'm struggling. They uplift and support me and have become kind of a family Mm -hmm. to me and the people who I get to work alongside of and with are some of the raddest, most beautiful, (laughs) fierce, complex, um, amazing, resilient people. And I get to be here as my job. Like it's, it is such a blessing. Um, and I feel like I get to be myself, um, in a real and striving to be empowered way for myself, but also for the community. Wow. Well, we are talking about people of color, LGBTQ folks who live in Vermont. Um, What is your Vermont origin story, if I may be so blunt (laughs) and so bold? Um, Because I know that um, you aren't originally from here. 
Mm -mm. So how did it come to be? Yeah, I'm actually, you're making me be curious because I... I'm not exactly a flatlander because I was born in... <laughs> which Bo- is which is what for the, for yeah. the folks that may not be and oriented? This, this is like a non-Vermonter's perspective on what that means. But mm-hmm. my understanding is like someone who's not from Vermont. Is it like anyone who's not from Vermont is a flatlander? Just in general? Maybe. Okay. I, I, I know it's like a non... Like if, you, if you're not... If you weren't born here, if you're from somewhere else... I'm, I grew up in the Midwest, so I think... Ah. But I was born in Brazil, so I don't know what the equivalent oh. <laughs> for that is. So okay. I, um, yeah, so I came to... My Vermont origin story is that I came to Vermont for school. I went to a place called Middlebury College. Oh, okay. Um, Shout out, Middlebury. Yeah, mm-hmm. Middlebury taught me a lot mm-hmm. um, in, a, in a lot of ways. There, um, I learned about advocacy and activism within silos of privilege and Hmm. um, the communities of identity and resistance that happened there um, have shaped the way that I navigate the world. Um, Mm. And so I was I was at Middlebury and then um, came after graduation to Burlington where I worked at UVM and then worked at UVM until coming here. Okay. Okay. Originally from Brazil, though. Yes. And um, was that a long time, a short time that you spent there? or It was very short. Uh, so I, something that I, I really love about the way I came into the world is my adoption story. Oh. And my, I am the child of a woman named Edna, and she... Is it okay to share this? (laughs) I I wish you would share as Uh, much as you're comfortable sharing. Yes, please. Thank you. I love talking. I love remembering Edna. She was the victim of something that's called a false adoption. So she was adopted into a family that essentially used her as an indentured servant. Where was this? This was in Brazil. Oh. And so she ran away when she was 11 um, to the streets of Brazil got pregnant at 13 with her first child and then got pregnant again at 15 with me and she couldn't read and was living under a bridge when she was pregnant with me but she had experienced false adoption she knew that she couldn't give me like she couldn't give me the life that I she wanted to give me it was hard enough to care for one child and so she insisted on being part of the adoption process and the lawyer said that she was one of the first parents who insisted on meeting and choosing who her child was going to. And at that time, there were rumors in Brazil that um, U.S. folks were coming and adopting Brazilian babies just to like get their organs to like sell, like that American folks couldn't be trusted. But Edna had a couple criteria. She wanted me to be adopted by a U.S. couple who highly valued education. And... Um, there were a couple other, there was like an Israeli couple that wanted to adopt me and there was a Brazilian couple that wanted to adopt me and she experienced a lot of pressure from folks to let me go to them. Um, there was even a threat of taking away her other child and she, and I know this because my, my adoption was supposed to take two weeks. It took four months because of all the kind of conflicting interest and things. So my mother, my when I say my mother, my mother who I grew up with, my adopted mother, got to spend time with my biological mother. And so I'm really blessed as an adopted child to know the story. And the thing about Edna is that she told folks that either they let me go to my 
U.S. family or they would be sentencing another child to the streets and that that was their choice, but those were the choices they got to make. And so I love talking about her because I come from someone who was like disempowered in all the ways you can imagine someone being disempowered, um, but who wanted, who knew that she had the ability to change the cycle of trauma that she had experienced and who used her uh, like she would beat my American families at US card games even though she like, mm-hmm. like she was very vivacious and so um, although I've had privilege an immense amount of privilege growing up in a US family that does value education I also never forget that I come from a really remarkable woman who didn't have those resources that led you to Indiana is that right yeah that led me to we were my family was in California for a minute, and then there was a shooting in a park that I used to go to. Oh. And so then we moved to the Midwest, and then we were in Michigan and then Indiana. Um, and I, it's, it's not necessarily a rabbit hole we need to go down, but I, oh. I moved to Indiana because I used to be a competitive figure skater. And oh. Yeah, that was my life for a while, and then... Um, I was told by a coach, we were in California, and my parents got me a lesson with an Olympic coach just as a gift, mm. and um, I was I was little, I was like maybe like 10, mm. and the coach said that I needed to go into training full-time, and that she would be willing to train me if they would let her, or that she would recommend people, and so then we moved so that I could train full-time as a figure skater, and I did that for a little while. Oh, okay. Now this is, I'm sorry, this is just where my mind goes. <laughs> did you see the movie I, Tanya? I haven't seen it okay, yet. Okay, did we have this conversation already? <laughs> no, listen, listen, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this is, this is reminiscent. Did this, you see it? I did see it, yes. Oh. And um, for me, I really, uh, it, my perception of who um, Tanya Harding was changed after I watched the film. Mm. Basically, um, I remember growing up and being pretty young and maybe not too old to absorb um, what was going on. But to me, it seemed like Tanya Harding like beat up another <laughs> like figure skater because she didn't want um, them to win. And the movie definitely tells, like, a different tale for sure. Do you remember hearing anything about that when you were growing up? I do. I, I do. And I think that the narrative is what you're saying, right? Is the is that, you know, it was like a malicious thing out of jealousy is I think what I grew up thinking. Um, and I think as an adult, I remember my mom saying something. Figure skating is a very expensive sport. Mm-hmm. And I... I'm really grateful for the privilege that I had and also in figure skating there were people who had like an immense privilege like there were people who I was training with who you know sold their homes and moved into one bedroom with multiple children so that they could pay for their child to skate and mm. my family was kind of in between those things but mm. with Tanya Harding I remember my mom saying once that like there was a class component to what was happening there and that for Tanya Harding she like figure skating is a, is a world where there is a lot of privilege and there's a lot of um there's just a lot of and like all the things that go with privilege right so like Mm -hmm. class privilege race privilege all these things um and so if you don't fit into a place if you have a lot of talent but you don't necessarily have the resources then the figure skating community 
I think can be hostile towards that or doesn't mm. know how to. And so I think the perception of the way that we have perceived Tanya um, has been maybe shaped by that. Definitely, yeah. Um, it's just like many, many other institutions shaped by privilege, right? Yeah. yeah. Fancy that. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. Hmm. Um, I love your laugh. I <laughs> This old thing. Laugh. This old thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. Thank you. I'm flattered. Um, but what what are some other things we we might want to know about Katerina? Sure. So G- given given <laughs> um, you know, free reign of this whole thing. Thank you. You know, the things things that I want people to tell me, I had a really magical opportunity recently to speak at Take Back the Night, mm. uh, which is has been a really meaningful event that happens. It's put on by Hope Works and is kind of a visibility speak out for survivors of sexual violence. And so in that, in being invited to speak, I was invited to speak about my survivor identity and also about the work and to try to find a way to connect those um, in a way that flowed and made sense and so the thing that I would love to share with folks are you know I grew up not really knowing that there were other people in the world who shared some of the identities that I hold I grew up being a person of color in predominantly white spaces I grew up being a queer person in predominantly hetero hetero spaces um, I grew up thinking that having a disability meant that I was less than or other. I grew up thinking that people who were thicker or full-figured weren't going to be lovable or couldn't be sexy. I grew up thinking that experiencing trauma, sexual trauma, um, abuse and relational trauma, that those things could render me unlovable. And as I have moved through the world, I have met badass people who hold those Mm -hmm. identities Mm -hmm. and who are thriving and magical and magical when they're not thriving and my goal is and my hope is to be visible enough to let other people feel less alone and so to just know that like there's someone else in the world who is walking with all of these identities and um i feel really grateful and empowered on my good days and i also am still in the process of learning Um, but my life as someone who holds those things is one that is predominantly positive and is very surrounded by love. So I just want to let people know that that is possible. Thank you very much for sharing that. Is there anything else you'd like to share at all that you think is important to the picture or? Yeah, I, uh, I think one is kind of silly and one is less silly. Okay. Um, the less silly one is to invite communities that are impacted by the things around them to be leaders in the community. You know, I um, have learned a lot and deeply value social work as a field, and there are brilliant social workers, and I'm so grateful for their contributions to our movement. And there is space for learned experience. There is space for, you know, some people blend their lived experience with 
intensive years in a program, which I, I think is really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And there are also people, I think about when we're talking about LGBT justice, when we're talking about people like Sylvia Rivera or Marsha P. Johnson, Miss mm -hmm. uh, Major, when we're talking about Audre Lorde, you know, I don't necessarily know all their educational histories, but I know that a lot of their expertise comes from being rooted in the community and having their own lived experiences. And I think that there can be a feeling that folks don't get to participate in the anti-violence movement or in you know, the disability rights movement, et cetera, without having a certain degree. And I would like to lovingly push back on that and mm. say that uh, I'm deeply appreciative to the contributions of social work. And I think that I would love to see more people who are saying, you know, I am a survivor of domestic violence and that makes me actually useful as opposed to hindering me from being able to meaningfully participate in the anti-violence movement. I have a disability and that means that I am someone who has the leadership qualities necessary to speak on behalf of the disability community. And so just to create a spaciousness for that and a really open invitation and to let anyone who wants to talk about those things to know that I am here as a resource, that I'm happy to work alongside them. Um, that's the le less silly thing. The more silly thing. That's amazing. That's awesome. Right now, that's a, our calling card. Our, our, uh, what is it? A bad signal? What is yeah. What is it to, to, to all right now? Yeah. That's a very positive message. I really appreciate that. That's great. Um, yeah, I, I uh, hope folks will heed that. Yeah, me okay. too. And you, you were going to say something <laughs> silly, which we always appreciate. Please, yeah. please go ahead. The, Less silly things. I um, I used to be a mega introvert, and mm. the thing that helped me be able to talk to people <laughs> was my first job was working as a clown. Whoa. So... Okay. So now listen. <laughs> All right. I did not prep for this. This was not. This was not in my notes, Katerina. You can attest to this. My notes are very bare. I um, folks, listen. I appreciate um, a very improvisational, freewheeling kind of spirit to the program, um, <laughs> which I hope you all appreciate. And um, I, I don't, I did not have a lot of notes prepared for this interview, but right now I feel like this is where the magic happens. When I hear something like, <laughs> Katerina, when I hear something like your first job was as a clown I know that this is going to be a very very interesting um, topic to delve all the way into if you wouldn't <laughs> if you wouldn't mind please elaborating yes please go ahead <laughs> I can do that um, so my best friend's mom runs her own clown business of course yes as one would yeah right. as, as you would expect and it was actually the best money I've ever made she charged hundred and sixty dollars an hour and so, but you know, you're working like she charged the people, the families. Oh, so the people who were renting the clown. Did you make all of that? I'd make sixty, but I oh, was like okay. fourteen. So okay, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well. So sometimes I'm like, okay, if I if I really need to, I can like go back. I can I can clown. Um, oh, I can go. Back. <laughs> you had a trade. I did. Yeah. Okay. I did. So excuse me. Yes. The um. How did this all start? It, so it started with, you know, her just meeting folks. There's actually a clown hierarchy. Okay. So you start in, like, the big suits. Like, I've been Elmo. I've been Scooby-Doo. I've been the Easter Bunny. Um, 
Dora, one of my favorite stories that maybe you'll appreciate is um, so Dora it has like a big like imagine like a hey Arnold head like kind of like a football head and then she's got like some hips like she's got you know she's got some like beautiful Latinx hips and the party was in a basement so there was like a narrow stairway to oh, walk dear. down and I thought I would be fine and my head made it through but then my hips got stuck oh no and I couldn't move and I was stuck in this like five-year-old's stairway that sounds um, like a farce it was and all the little kids had to get behind me and push oh. to get me to go to <laughs> oh dear um, I worked as an elf through them once at like a mall and then I dated another elf who would like pass me messages through the other elves so that it's like weird stuff. <laughs> I, um, I, I, if you don't mind, I need to interject for a second. Yeah. I, I was also an elf. No, you weren't. Yeah. No, you weren't. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we we haven't had this conversation no. yet. No. Oh. Cutie pock elves in Vermont. Who would think about that? We're out here. Mm-hmm. We exist. Thank you. Visibility. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It matters. Listen, I was an elf. It was actually in New Hampshire. But I was, um, yeah, I worked at, I guess I can, I can say this, Santa's Village. <laughs> I, yeah. like, I don't know. Why. <laughs> like, I don't know um, that, why it would be censored. Um, yeah, at Santa's Village, I was, oh, t- Tinker Doodle? What was his? Oh, my god! What was the name of the elf? I think it was, it was Tink, Tinker something. Yeah, and um, it was, it sounds like something like you're describing, like it was a big suit <laughs> with a head mm-hmm. and like a body kind of zip up thing yeah. kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah, and I would dance around on stage. Yes, absolutely. Before um, a short 3D film would come on in a theater. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I. I have always found you wonderful and magical, but I did not expect that I would experience elf solidarity with you today. That's just not something that I thought was going to happen. <laughs> oh, elves. Yeah. Oh. How, how did we get to talk about... I'm sorry. I, I might have lost... Um, did, you said that those were, those were your first gigs. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And, and so from that... Where do we, how do we connect the dots to the work you're doing now? What are you <laughs> from clown to anti-violence work? Yes, um, let's talk about that. Well, you know, something that I loved about being a clown was that I got paid to make people happy. Mm, like mm. I got paid to like show up and just for like a little bit of time try to make things good. You know, try to make someone joyful, attune to someone, make kids happy. Um, we all know that it isn't. I don't, well. In clowning, it's not always that easy. You know, when I was in the costume, people would step on my tail or, like, you know, there was some some hard stuff. I had a um, – my boss once was hired for a birthday party. There were 55 kids there. She was in an Elmo costume, and then the parents left. So it was just, like, her in an Elmo costume with 55 children. Supervising 55 <laughs> children. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Which is hard to do. Um, so, you know, I guess the, the way that I would connect the dots is I show up here every day and – hope to be a conduit for joy and hope to be a conduit for um, being there to attune to someone's needs and to try to meet them in the most positive place I can. And that doesn't mean denying suffering. Like, I don't think that meeting someone in a positive place means to not acknowledge the 
the shittiness or the hurt or the pain um, or the feeling stagnant. It just means being there to hold space and to be an energy that is loving and uplifting. And so I, the, that's the way I would see them. I don't wear the costumes as much in here. But... <laughs> that, that part has kind of gone yeah. by the wayside. Less balloons. Right, but... right. But it sounds like you're sort of a joy ambassador. That's is that a... safe to say? I don't know. <laughs> that's, that... a, that's a really meaningful and beautiful thing for you to say. <laughs> I So in the hope to use visibility as a conduit for connection and social change, as I feel like you do so beautifully. Joy, I used to think that I mm. didn't get joy, that just like joy was something that was never going to happen for mm. me. Um, because there was a lot of my life that was trauma. Like m much of my formative um, life was very traumatic. And so it was really hard for me to connect with, with joy, with happiness, with like being present with people let alone with my body and so there was a point in my life where I was just like I don't get joy like joy is this thing that other people have mm. that I'm never like I can have like some happiness or like I can like something but joy is just never going to happen for me and I really believed that and I am so blessed and grateful that I do have joy like I you've made me laugh so much for there was a lot of <laughs> um there was a lot of time in my life where I couldn't laugh like I just hmm. didn't and I would sometimes make myself laugh because I wanted to so badly. Mm. I was like, I'm never going to actually laugh. And then mm. I did. And so for you to call me an ambassador of joy, <laughs> um, to come from that to like having Reggie Condra, you know, sit across you and call you an ambassador of joy is um, a testament. And I don't, you know, I don't, it's, there's not a, like a linear d dynamic to healing or dimension to healing. Or if people don't get to joy, I don't think that they are any less as people or any less deserving or any less strong. But for me to know that it is possible um, gives me hope. And when I come into this safe space from every morning, I can remember that. Like at one point, I thought I couldn't laugh. Now I laugh. At one point, I thought I couldn't have joy. Now I have joy. At, and the, what are the things I think I can't do now? And and how can I create a possibility that those things can happen? And for people who are sitting on the couch that I'm sitting at and then me being where you are, um, without putting an expectation on them, how can I create an openness where they recognize that there's a world where they can have the things that they deserve and that they can be possible. I can only imagine um, when you're doing the work that you do, how inspiring you are to other people. Anything significant going on that you want to shine light on in any sort of way? That's such a beautiful, thank you for creating, thank you for creating space the way you do. I, I'm so grateful. There is one thing that I would love to just um, mm -hmm. be mindful of. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I'm, that we at Safe Space and I, as someone in the anti-violence movement and thinking about a lot, there, I have recently learned about something called carceral feminism, mm. which is the idea that the way we solve gender-based violence is through increased prosecution, um, incarceration, and policing. And it's the most common form. It's, it is said to be one of the most common forms of feminism in our systems today. Wow. Um, and in the anti-violence movement, I think that is very present. Like the ways that we as a culture are trained to respond to violence are through the police, are through the courts, are through all these things. And so as an anti-violence entity, how do we push against that? We at Safe Space, 
work with the police and we work in the criminal legal system not because we think that's the answer but because that is where harm is happening and because that is how we as a culture you know even if the person who was experiencing violence doesn't call the police it's very likely that a neighbor will call the police or maybe the person who's being you know there are cases where the person who uh, there was a woman who fired a warning shot above her head Mm -hmm. and the person she fired the warning shot at who had been abusive toward her left and called the police and then she i think she got like 67 years in prison and the standing your ground um case on her defense didn't work and so recognizing that that was a black woman wasn't it i believe so Mm -hmm. yes um so recognizing that framework there's something called community um community coordinated response or Mm. interventions and there's a really beautiful website called creative interventions and they talk about how do we work so working with police and criminal legal folks so that the system as it stands is less harmful that's one part of the work as we envision it Mm -hmm. and then the other part of the work that is exciting me perhaps the most Mm. definitely the most is this idea of building communal responses that and so the reason I wanted to talk about this with you yeah. is that when we know about each other, right. when we know about our work, when we have people that we care about, we can create other responses to violence. And and for me, um, you know, I left an abusive relationship in my past, and the police were not called. I didn't get any. You know, a lot of the services we have in safe space, I didn't know about. Mm. But my friends came and moved me out of the apartment. You know, my friends watched my cat. I, you were fortunate to have those resources. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but not everyone does. Not everyone does. Mm-hmm. And so what can we do as a community? Like, what can we do? And to be aware of each other and to make it so that we're networking relationally as opposed to systemically. Mm. So the hope is that um, someone could say, you know, maybe I'm experiencing violence or maybe my I, I want to talk about my relationship because it's confusing to me. I'm going to go to a person. Like, I'm going to go to Katerina. I'm going to go to Julia, who is my colleague. I'm going to go to Skylar, who is my other colleague. Mm. Um, and I think that what Brown and Out does, partially that I'm so thankful for, is that you create the possibility of a coordinated community response because you're creating community and you're creating visibility for communities that are often isolated. And so I just wanted to invite people to think with us, to think with me, just Katerina the person, or to think with me, Katerina... Um, the safe space director as to what connections we can be making with each other so that there's a broad network of support that is personal and that is relational so that people have options other than the criminal legal system. You are providing so much food for thought, (laughs) which I appreciate so much. Um, These are things that I don't know if I often think about, and I'm really happy to have my eyes open to them by you today. What is your vision or version of black and brown queer culture in Vermont? Well, what would you say that that looks like? Yeah, so I am very blessed, and I'm also kind of a racial cultural weirdo in that I um a, a racial cultural weirdo holla <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry continue <clears throat> um because I was raised I'm, I'm an I was adopted into an all-white family and the town where I grew up um 
there were two other people of color in my school and they were sisters and in the place where I grew up all other like all racial other was like there was no distinction on what racial other was so I grew up um like there's no well I don't know like a derogatory term for like an Amazonian Brazilian person but Mm. I received derogatory terms Mm. for like folks who are Mexican for for black folks like Mm. those um slurs and slangs were the ones that I received growing up and I so that was was interesting and not that I claim those identities but I at a very young age I was able to have insight into racialized pain from a lot of different lenses and then as I grew older got to become connected with kind of the power and joy and resistance of those communities and so coming to Vermont was actually the first place that I experienced a community of color in a big way Hmm, um really yeah which is not what you hear from most people okay so that's my cultural weirdo Uh, Um, and this was when you went to school when I went to school Mm -hmm. partially um I went to Middlebury and my first year almost flunked out because I who am I to be at Middlebury? I'm not smart enough. I'm a, like be, there's there are all these messages implicit and explicit that mm. y- you receive. One is like you're a diversity admit, like and that's like a whole complicated uh, thing. To... Meaning that you almost don't deserve your spot at the school. Yeah, there's like they had to mm-hmm. put you in there. Yeah, and whether that is said directly or something that is just kind of implied in the atmosphere. Um, that can be really hard. And so I almost, like, I almost flunked out my first semester. And then, um, but when I walked on campus to orientation, the first person I met was a really dynamic, lovely woman named Jennifer Herrera. Mm. And she um, ran the diversity initiatives and the multicultural initiatives there. And she hired me. She, like, met me, met my mom, and then hired me to work in her office. And then through her, I the next year I moved into what was the Polana House, which was the... Um, house for students of color oh and it was just like this little like haven and beacon and we each got to do like a cultural event for the campus community in our home and then I lived in the queer studies house for the next two years and then I came to UVM was at worked in admissions and then worked at what is now the mosaic center for students of color and so was in like Vermont is so white mm-hmm. and I and not to say that it's only white because it obviously is not like mm-hmm. you and I are sitting in this room and we're talking on brown and out yeah. as a testament to to the fact that we as queer and trans people of color are here but I was surrounded by people of color I was surrounded by um like how do we survive in this climate like how do we create spaces of wellness amongst spaces of whiteness and um and the people that I know, I have such a beautiful community of color here. Um, one of our beloved friends, Veronica. I hope it's okay that I'm talking about you, Veronica. Veronica. Um, <laughs> Shut up, Veronica. Yeah, just received the Voice of Passion Award in her grad program. I had been mourning her because I was like, we're going to lose Veronica. And I, like, Vermont doesn't get to keep people that often. Like, she's going to graduate. Mm. We're going to lose her. She's staying. Okay. And I can't tell you how many rad people there's another so you are a powerhouse in my life um another set of powerhouses in my life are um Farine, Kiba and Brianna who are doing a podcast called Black to Our Roots oh okay tell and me more about that so it's uplifting um 
voices of people of color in Vermont. Um, they are very joyful, powerful, real, spiritual, magical women. And okay. they had, you know, it's funny because I um, work has been a little exhausting. Like it's been a little nonstop. Mm. But yesterday there was my agenda on a Saturday in Vermont mm-hmm. was beautiful barbecue with Reggie Condra. <laughs> um, Followed by Black to Our Roots poetry reading. Oh, okay. I didn't hear about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Well. Yeah. Well, there are going to be more. Okay, so, okay. And then followed by um, Paint and Sip Cutie Pock Night with Sunshine. Oh, yes. Okay. So that's just like a day. Like, who would think that that's a day in Vermont, right? Like, that was my, like, my whole agenda was like uh-huh. cutie pock stuff it sounds very affirming all of that stuff yeah and that that's here like i think that that um, is here wow <laughs> so that is my i guess what i would say is that the um I, i'm gonna butcher this but there's <laughs> don't worry about thank it you, <laughs> thank we, you thank you we edit for a reason it's oh, good. all good <laughs> thank you so much there's a foucault um foucault says something like the most impactful voice is one that comes from silence Mm -hmm. because if a voice is coming from silence, it's the voice that's most clearly heard. Mm. And so I think about that for community in Vermont, that we are coming from a place where we are often told we don't exist, Mm. where we're often told we don't have power, where we're often told where we can be tokenized, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the, the voice collective and individual that comes through our communities is so strong and brilliant and creative and magical. And I find that that has really uplifted and helped me to be supported and happy here. Well, yay. Yeah. Thank you, Reggie. (laughs) Oh, no problem. Anytime. You said something though, that I thought was interesting. So interesting that I wrote it down here on my notes. Um, you said Vermont doesn't get to keep people. And I was just wondering if we could expound a small bit on that. Vermont, um, I would agree, has a retention problem when it comes to young people. Would you say also like people of color? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm nodding. I realize you can't hear me now. Yeah, no. <laughs> yes. Affirmative. Okay. Um, why do you think that is? Do you want to get into that? Sure, yeah, I'm happy to do that. And, you know, this might not be helpful, but to complicate it a little bit, like, I say that, and then I'm like, oh, shit, Katarina, how long have you been here? Like, I've been here since 2000. I mean, if if you're comfortable with it, we can get into your long-term Vermont plans, you know what I mean? Do you feel like, like, this is somewhere that you want to make a home forever? Like, if not, like, why? What's the deal? Or just if you want to put yourself in other people's shoes, why does Vermont have um, a somewhat hard time keeping its, do you want to say, young people of color? Yeah. Okay. So to the second part of that, the, how do I say this? I think the community here is one that if people tap into can be really sustaining and transformative. Mm. And the external reality of what it is to live here is real. So I think in terms of there being such an an affluence and privilege, I think especially coming from working at University of Vermont, um, that being a place of privilege and also just the structure of higher ed, the structure, um, 
of our country. And so I have people who I love who have been here, have fallen in love with the community and said, thank you. I'm so grateful for this chapter. And now I'm going to go somewhere else, usually somewhere where I see myself more reflected mm. in the community. So that's a, that's a part of it is you feel like folks not seeing themselves reflected in the community. Yeah. Yeah. Is, and I also feel like it would be, it doesn't feel right of me to not acknowledge the many people who have stayed, like the people who who have rooted here mm-hmm. and and have made it possible, like in their staying, they have made it possible for me to stay. Yeah, like, I think, like you've been here for how long? How many years have you lived? In, um, in Burlington, 2000, since 2011. And oh, wow, okay. In Vermont, since 2007. Okay. So a long time. So quite a while, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I would say in terms of, so there are people, like I think about, um, you know, people who moved recently but who we had for a long time, Winnie Pazamore and her partner Henry, they worked at UVM mm-hmm. and did just magical work um, mm. at the university and in their homes with people they love. I think about Fareen and um and her partner and they do um loving day celebrations they are What's that? Um, loving day was when the loving case which um was oh, the case for interracial marriage happened. yes it's my partner and my anniversary actually we met on loving day oh well congratulations yeah I, I, wait, wait wait but when is wait loving day it, isn't today that's no not, it's no. not today <laughs> yep, no not today not today not for a while but Farine um, and her partner open their home and have this loving day celebration where they invite interracial couples to come and there's like food and music and potluck and community and it's like brown and beautiful and wonderful. Um, You know, that's so amazing. So I think the hope is like if if Vermont is not the place for you to have love and support and care to to get you to where you want to go. But I feel like through this project, um, one thing that makes me feel very, I feel connected to you in a lot of ways, but one thing that makes me feel very connected is that if you do want to stay here, lack of community ideally shouldn't be a hindrance because we are here. Mm -hmm. We are fabulous. Yes. Um, We care wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, my beloved, wonderful partner is a Vermonter Mm -hmm. and has not really had a chapter living outside of Vermont as an adult. Mm -hmm. And, I feel like everyone deserves that chapter to like go to a new place and like see what that's like Mm. and build a life there. I had that chapter here. And so we will go and have that chapter, not immediately, um, but it is in the future plans. And then we talk about maybe coming back here um, because I think like, who do I want my little brown baby to grow up with? Like like all these folks, you know, so Vermont definitely has. um, And I feel like when I raise a child, it will be a brown child. And I, want that beautiful brown child to have badass beautiful wonderful brown folks mm-hmm. around them and i feel like this is the place where that could happen mm-hmm. okay <laughs> yeah i mean like there's definitely a reason why we're here you know what i mean why we stay for sure but it's also so interesting i think you kind of touched on it a little bit just how big of an impact one individual's you know void can be felt like when 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 just one person goes away you know what i mean how much of an impact that can have on the community when do you most or when did you last say that you could uh feel brown and out when when did you last have a brown and out moment shall we say 
Mm. Whatever that may mean to you. I'm trying to pick one because I feel it all the time. <laughs> you feel it all the time. I you do. feel both your brownness and your outness all the time. I do. In and I assume I'm not trying to uh, assume though, uh, in a positive way. In a positive way. In a way. Um, I really do wholeheartedly believe in the uniting power of visibility. And I believe in vis- in the potential of visibility to break isolation. Mm. And so my hope is, and you know, I'm not, there are so many identities that I am not, but in the identities that I do hold, um, queerness and brownness being two of them, they are connected to, I, I see all oppression as connected and all liberation as connected. And so when I show up in the world, I, you know, I, I always show up as a brown person. Mm-hmm. Um, when I lead, I lead as a brown person. When I speak, I speak as a brown person. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm relating to someone that we care about through safe space, I'm doing that through lens of my racial and cultural identities. Right. And then I'm always queer. <laughs> right. That, right. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say, but like a most potent re- recent moment. Um I, the one that's coming up for me mm-hmm. is, um, so my partner, and I think she'd be okay, Electra. Hey, shout out. <laughs> shout out to Electra. Um, she is so wonderful about, um, she says that she learns to love me through the way that I love myself. And she acknowledges the, the beauty of my like golden brown skin and finds you know like the the roundness that i'm told is like not okay by our society she calls me her voluptuous goddess um well that is beautiful and so to to see the love that i work on cultivating it myself be reflected through someone who loves me so bravely and so wonderfully i think in those moments i feel brown and out because i'm seen not just by myself but also by this other person who truly witnesses and loves me so i think that is the moment that's coming up that is um very sweet and very tender and um i'm feeling not jealous but um that's a love that i think like people should um see as a shiny example of love that is great um Reggie. What? Oh, do no. you Do you know that you're hella lovable, too? <laughs> like, spending time with you is such a joy. I feel so spoiled that... Am I blushing? <laughs> I can't see myself. You Actually, just a little bit. Okay, yeah, well. just a little bit. But I'm feeling it all. I'm feeling all the emotions. You're providing that right now. Sorry. <laughs> um, no, wow. That's really just, like, I mean encouraging honestly to hear about that's are there any other messages that you want to send forth while we're here and the mics are on and <laughs> and it's hmm. i don't know how to word it yet yes but it is happening in my self okay. um i think that like the love it's interesting because when i ask Electra like how do you love me so well like <laughs> I'm a mess right now because like I'm a 
I feel like I'm a community love project. Like I, I give a lot of love, but I, it requires a lot of love to sustain me. Isn't that just to, how it is? I, I guess it is. Isn't, I think that's just how it is. Yeah. I think it is. But um, when she tells me that it's the way I love myself, you know, I, the love is, is out there. And I think that, um, I don't know what I'm struggling to say is that you talked about it being hard to find a Katerina love, the Katerina love <laughs> that, that I have. The reason that I get to love Electra the way that I do is because of the relationship I have with myself. And that kind of makes me stomp my feet and it makes me a little, cause I don't, think, I don't want to have to, it's so hard. Why do I have to like, it is hard for me to love myself sometimes. Mm. Um, mm. and it's a continuous thing. And, um, but I do think that it is possible and, um, selfishly and not to make you blush again or put you on the spot, but like every moment with you has been a gift and, <laughs> and you're such a beacon and you're so easy to love. Um, and loving you is such a gift. And I, I feel that for so many people that I know. So I think when the, the love is here, I think the love is through the people that are in Brown and out. The love is in this community. The love is in ourselves. And then we're, I'm just happy for all the other ways that it manifests, too. Thank you so much, Katerina, for being on Brown and Out today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, um, you have helped me feel empowered and visible. And I am so grateful. <laughs>